My name is Mary Beth Folia, and I'm a healthcare ethicist and acting chief of ethics policy at the National Center for Ethics and Healthcare at the Department of Veterans Affairs. I'm also an affiliate faculty member in the Department of Bioethics and Humanities at the University of Washington School of Medicine. I wrote this essay about my sister's inability to obtain effective pain treatment after the release of federal guidelines to curb opioid misuse and her subsequent death from complications. The views expressed in this article are my own and do not reflect the position or policy of the Department of Veterans Affairs or the U.S. government. The opioid crisis caused my sister to die prematurely, but not in the way one might suppose. She died not from indiscriminate prescribing or an overdose, but from the unintended effects of policy and practices aimed at ameliorating the opioid epidemic. She died because U.S. policy created conditions in which clinicians felt they had few options but to deny her the very medicine that she believed had enabled her to live a life that was good enough. Before my sister became sick, she was a force of nature. She had been an artist and creative director at a national greeting card company. She was insatiably curious about people, and she was known to orchestrate interior design projects on a shoestring for friends and family alike. Then the setbacks began. She was diagnosed with renal disease, spent well over a decade on dialysis, and overcame at least two bouts of sepsis and a failed kidney transplant. She also had later-stage osteoporosis and often experienced debilitating pain. She relied on long-term opioids, which her primary care clinician had prescribed, to live her life reasonably well, even with the relentless assault of chronic illness. Then in March 2016, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention published its Voluntary Guideline for Prescribing Opioids for Chronic Pain. The recommendations were intended to assist primary care clinicians who were prescribing opioids for the management of chronic, non-cancer pain and to reduce opioid prescriptions and subsequent dependence, misuse, or other adverse events. The need for evidence-based guidelines was indisputable. In the period 1999 to 2015, more than 183,000 people in the United States had died from overdoses related to prescription opioids, according to the CDC. Though largely supportive, the American Medical Association warned that guideline implementation could result in unintended consequences for patient care. It turned out that the AMA's warning was prescient. Though the guideline was well-intentioned and necessary, its implementation process was insufficient, accelerating and justifying actions on the part of clinicians, health systems, insurers, state legislatures, law enforcement officials, and others that discouraged clinical flexibility and patient-centeredness and resulted in avoidable harm to some chronic pain patients. My sister was caught in this web. The primary care clinician who had initially prescribed opioids to her refused to refill her prescriptions, insisting that instead she seek an appointment and ongoing care from a massively overwhelmed pain clinic. The timing could not have been worse. In the spring of 2017, Our mother died of congestive heart failure, and two months later, on what would have been their 65th wedding anniversary, our father died of complications following a fall and subsequent surgical hip repair. 
My sister missed her pain clinic intake appointment because of his fall and subsequent hospitalization. She was spending nearly every moment at his bedside, except for a few hours of sleep and thrice-weekly dialysis. She was nearly out of pain medicines by the time he died, but her doctor would not prescribe her with enough medicine to get her through the funeral and to the next pain clinic appointment. He refused to take her calls and conveyed his message through an office assistant. I was dumbfounded. We had just left my father's deathbed and his now still body for the last time. Still reeling from fresh grief, I called the clinic back knowing that I could appeal to reason and their sense of compassion. After all, this physician and clinic had cared for both of my parents for over 30 years and my sister for the five years she had just spent with them, helping them remain in their home as they declined. Surely the clinic would help. Instead, I received a call from the health system security officer telling me and my sister not to call the clinic back and to go to an emergency room, just not theirs. Briefly, we entertained the desperate and crazy idea of finding someone who might be able to access street drugs, but we dismissed it because of safety concerns and worries about risking my federal employment and license if, as would inevitably be the case, this very bad idea led to a bad outcome. At the funeral held months later, my sister was almost unable to join our brothers and me as we carried our father's remains to the sacristy for mass. So potent was her pain. One brother carried our dad's ashes while my other brother and I eased our sister to a pew as inconspicuously as possible. My sister died at age 55 in September 2018, following complications from emergency surgery for a perforated colon. According to her surgeon, her condition was a result, in part, of taking over-the-counter non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. When she could no longer obtain an opioid prescription, she increased her use of NSAIDs to try to lessen the crescendo of pain that left her virtually a prisoner in her home and sometimes bed. NSAIDs are known to carry an increased risk of adverse events such as gastrointestinal bleeding, ulceration, and perforation of the stomach or intestines, which can be fatal. The last two weeks of her life and of my time with her were spent in a surgical intensive care unit, a twilight zone of machines, alarms, harsh lights, and an unceasing parade of caregivers, which was the most uninhabitable and inhospitable place to die. But the care was unimpeachable, the nurses and doctors were kind, and her pain was competently managed. It's not that my sister didn't try to cooperate with her providers. She tapered off opioids, she was given no choice, underwent costly and repeated diagnostic tests and scans to evaluate the root causes of her pain. Clinicians didn't always accept the results of tests conducted by others, and tried a plethora of other medicines prescribed by her doctors all of which had side effects, and none of which was effective. Adjunctive therapies, including chair yoga and massage, had always had a place in her regimen, but without opioids, these were insufficient to quiet her pain. She spent the last year of her life trying to find relief and get back to the life she loved, a life of art, design, dinners with friends, books, and cinema. She saw pain specialists, an orthopedist, psychiatrist, physiatrist, physical therapists, chiropractors, and more. Her nephrologists didn't see it as within their scope of practice to help facilitate either pain or palliative care. 
It was a Herculean task for her just to schedule, get ready for, and then get to and from these myriad appointments and diagnostic tests on top of in-center dialysis. It seemed as if no one recognized or would acknowledge how fragmented her care was and how burdensome and exhausting it was, leaving her spent and without energy reserves for anything but watching streaming video. She often felt that the doctors and nurses she sought care from presumed that she was addicted to and misused opioids rather than a person with advanced illness and chronic pain who relied on the drug for its salutary effect on her pain and quality of life. She perceived that her clinicians were unable or unwilling to draw this diagnostic and treatment distinction, and that continuing to offer them a counter-narrative was pointless, especially in the case of the pain specialists and primary care clinicians. She felt defeated, and at times questioned whether her present state was a life worth living. Yet she was courageous and had an abundance of hope, resolve, and resilience, far more than I can imagine myself having under similar circumstances. Almost as a last resort, I persuaded her to consult with a palliative care outpatient program. Like many people, my sister conflated hospice, which generally is care for people with a life expectancy of six months or less, and palliative care, specialized health care for people at any stage of living with serious illness, which focuses on symptom management and quality of life. I painstakingly explained that palliative care didn't mean you would die imminently, but rather that you had a serious life-limiting illness. I also explained that the beauty of palliative care is that its practitioners focus on quality of life within the context of serious illness and a likely foreshortened life expectancy. In fact, palliative care helps some patients live longer lives than they otherwise might have. Palliative care clinicians cared about helping you manage your symptoms to provide the best life possible, I told my sister. I pointed her to the program's website, which described who the clinic served, end-stage renal disease was listed, along with many other conditions, what the program's goals were, improve quality of life for patients and families facing serious medical illness, and what types of symptoms they help manage, distressing physical symptoms such as pain, shortness of breath, nausea, difficulty sleeping, and loss of appetite. I helped her identify a doctor who seemed well-trained, was not in the publicly available state disciplinary database, and had good social media reviews and a philosophy of care that was aligned with my sister's approach to patienthood. She agreed to make an appointment and began to regain hope. At the appointed time, my sister was led to a conference room where she was joined by an attending physician and an honorage of caregivers. To their credit, they were well-versed in her medical history and had reviewed all available records before the appointment. After that, things went south. The clinicians, according to my sister, presumed that she had decided to discontinue dialysis. I imagine that instead they may have been trying to explore her thinking about this decision. She clarified that, in fact, she was there because she wanted to live. But to live well for whatever time she had left, she needed help with pain relief. And until this past year, opioids had provided that relief. Wrong answer. The palliative care service would not accept her as a patient because her primary and unremitting symptom was pain, and there was no expectation that she would die anytime soon. They offered to refer her to another pain clinic and reassured her that if and when she decided to discontinue dialysis, they would help her die. I felt awful, apologetic, and ashamed for my role in one more runaround. 
Mayor, my world has become so small, my sister told me. My sister died within six months of that appointment. About a month later, I wrote a letter to the service chief of the palliative care program where she had sought care. The service chief arranged to call me and we had an extended conversation about my sister's care and about how people like her fit into the program's treatment model. I pointed out that by any definition of palliative care, my sister would have qualified and their patient-facing promotional materials had done nothing to dispel this view. I was unable to obtain clear information from the service chief about the program's internal admission and screening criteria, but she was forthright about the challenges posed by the opioid epidemic, including fear and risk aversion by clinicians and the health systems because of legal, regulatory, and law enforcement pressures. She also acknowledged that the demand for the program services was outpacing the availability of palliative care resources. Most of the program's work is in the inpatient environment, and much of it is with cancer patients. Expansion to outpatient settings has raised questions about who the program can and should serve and who might be more effectively treated by others, particularly with respect to treating chronic pain in patients with advanced illness who might live for one or more additional years. That said, the program's publicly available materials were grossly misleading, suggesting that it cast a much wider net than it could realistically achieve, given resource constraints and confusion about their mission. Such lack of transparency is difficult to justify and contributes to mistrust of healthcare institutions and practitioners. I asked the service chief to modify the program's website to better reflect its actual scope of services. We talked about specific changes to the program's model, such as accepting patients in the gray zone, like my sister, that is, patients with advanced illness and a poor prognosis, who nevertheless could be expected to live one or several more years, but co-managing their care with a pain specialist or including a pain specialist on the outpatient palliative care service to consult and advise. Palliative care attendings could help pain specialists weigh and balance treatments, including opioids, within the context of serious life-limiting illness, the patient's goals, and quality of life considerations. And pain specialists could help palliative care clinicians consider issues related to opioid misuse, dependency, and available alternative treatments. The outpatient palliative care program where my sister sought care is part of a preeminent teaching institution that is affiliated with a medical college and nursing school, and the program could provide an excellent training opportunity for students in the health professions. I have not heard back from the service chief despite reaching out about what specific changes the program would make based on my sister's experience. I hope fears of litigation aren't what kept them from closing the loop with me. My goal was simply to honor my sister's request to tell her story and to redeem her death by trying to ensure that others will not suffer in the same way. I can't help but wonder whether this story might have unfolded differently if my sister had had advanced cancer rather than advanced organ failure, or if she had been allowed to continue using opioids to manage her chronic pain. I fully appreciate that the trajectory and experience of living and dying with certain types of cancer may vary from the trajectory of living and dying with chronic and progressive organ failure. Cancer pain may be different from the pain experienced by patients whose hearts have weakened or whose kidneys have failed. But the obligation to relieve suffering is absolute, not contingent on what form the suffering takes. 
My heart still breaks when I think about my sister being tossed about like a hot potato from one clinician or clinical program to another, often by good people doing their best in an unaccommodating system. Who should provide pain and symptom management for complex patients who fall into the illness trajectory common to those with major organ failure? These are patients who are progressively declining and whose goals of care lean toward comfort and quality of life. They are patients who will likely die within a year or two. Should opioids be off the table for non-cancer patients who fit these parameters? I agree that opioids should not be the first line of treatment in many, if not most, instances. But what is a healthcare professional's ethical responsibility to patients whom we started on opioids and who get complete or partial relief from them? Population-derived evidence that finds long-term opioid therapy ineffective might not apply to all individuals within the population. The individual patient's experience should count as evidence, too, as it does in most treatment decision-making. The restrictions on opioid prescribing would not have been an issue for my sister if she had been accepted as a palliative care patient. The CDC recommendations were intended for outpatient opioid prescribing outside of active cancer treatment, palliative care, and end-of-life care. I try not to dwell on the fact that this tortuous process could have been circumvented entirely. I can't claim to have definitive answers to any of the questions my sister's death has raised, but I do know that in a well-intentioned effort to avoid opioid misuse and adverse outcomes, certain types of vulnerable patients have been unfairly and disproportionately harmed by the very institutions and agents from whom they seek relief. This is structural iatrogenesis. Scott Stonington and Diana Coffa who define this expression in a recent New England Journal of Medicine article, note that clinicians are often the first to recognize structures that systematically harm certain types of patients and should play a role in affecting change. I couldn't agree more, but I would go further. I believe that affecting systemic change to reduce systematic harm is a professional obligation that starts with policymakers and extends to clinicians, healthcare administrators, and others who influence healthcare delivery. We who inform healthcare policy, delivery, and practice can do better. In June 2019, the New England Journal of Medicine published a commentary by the CDC guidelines authors stating that while it had achieved its goals in many ways, it also had been applied in ways that they had not intended and that had compromised the safety and well-being of some patients. In particular, The authors noted that the guidelines had been misapplied to certain patient populations and that some patients on higher doses of opioids had been compelled to reduce or discontinue use. While I applaud the clarification, I am disappointed that the CDC, a trusted institution that hopes to remain trusted, did not respond sooner to the data and stories that suggested an urgent need for a course correction. I encourage the CDC, health systems, and practitioners to consider what they might have done differently to prevent the suffering that resulted, however unintentionally, from this guidance. Importantly, how do policymakers prevent unintended but likely foreseeable negative outcomes from occurring in the first place? This question can't be sufficiently addressed here, but I offer some thoughts based on my own experiences in healthcare ethics, policy development, and implementation. First, 
the use of an ethical framework for leadership or policy decisions or inclusion of an ethicist for high-stakes policy can help ensure that decision-makers consider short- and long-term consequences, both positive and negative, of policy options across stakeholder groups and that policies adhere to ethical standards and principles. Second, complex initiatives, policy, and guidance require rigorous, evidence-based implementation strategies to ensure that they have their intended effects and that unintended effects are proactively identified and promptly ameliorated. Implementing policy or guidance requires extensive stakeholder engagement and education, and evaluation is critical to ensuring both that objectives are met and that no stakeholder is being harmed. In my view, policy implementation and evaluation are co-equal with policy development. Unfortunately, implementation and evaluation are often not viewed as priorities and tend to be inadequately resourced. I am still hollowed out from my sister's death, but I remain hopeful that her story might cause us to more fully appreciate the human cost of unintended consequences and deepen our resolve to prevent them.